Welcome back to Deal Junkies, a real estate podcast. I'm Gabe Johansson. I'm here today with Mike Nuss. We're going to be doing a deep dive mm. into the brain of Mike Nuss. So fun. I'm so, so fun. excited. Uh, Dane McKinney, what are you doing? Dane's writing something down. He's taking notes today. I hope an interview, Mike. <clears throat> I think I've got a a little more knowledge about Mike than you do. You do. You do. Actually, that's a good point. I don't know Mike well, so this is going to be fun. We've spent a little bit of time together. We're having fun, and now we're co-hosting a podcast together, so it's about time we get to know each other. Um, I would first like to just give a quick shout out to The Rec. We're here in Kaiser, Oregon. Um, The Rec is a community center bowling alley, and it's owned by Valor Mentoring. Um, they open for us today. It's 22 degrees outside and we have an ice storm that's imminent. So we thank them very much for setting us up today. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't heard of Valor Mentoring, they mentor uh, youth, kind of at youth, uh, at-risk youth in our community, uh, young men, primarily uh, middle, middle school aged and high school aged boys um, who might be in need of some guidance. And so they're doing some wonderful work in our community. Thank you so much to Valor Mentoring and the Rec for providing this podcast studio for us today. Uh, let's dive in. I don't know. Is there what episode are we on? We, is this episode two officially? We're going to call this episode I think two. We're calling it two. Okay, so we're going to call this episode two uh, to start out our series. The goal was to um, interview the hosts of this show. So we will introduce to you today Mike Nuss, owner of Rare Bird Real Estate, Rare Bird Property Management, local real estate celebrity. Um, I didn't even know that was a thing until I met Mike. I've actually I have to I have to make a confession. I've never listened to Bigger Pockets before. Isn't that weird? I'm just I got to be honest with you. I'm not really a podcast guy. Mm-hmm. I haven't been before now. So I might dive in a little bit, but Mike Nuss has appeared on Bigger Pockets, which is my understanding. That's a very big deal. Um, and he is somebody who uh, I consider to be more of a real estate scientist. I really look up to Mike and and the way he approaches real estate. I see myself as more of a real estate artist. So I'm intrigued by those that are much smarter than me that understand things that I don't understand. So um, anything I'm missing, Dane, before we kick off and we start ask, asking no, Mike no, questions? No. I love that yeah. perspective though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, this is a good, I think we'll, we'll have, we'll, we see the world from two different angles, but we're trying to arrive at the same exact spot maybe. So, um, okay. With that, Mike, I'm going to ask you, just give us just a real quick history of who you are, what led you into the world of real estate? Such a good segue. (laughs) I am not scientific at all. (laughs) Well, I watched your presentation the other night. You had graphs and numbers and you're talking about the Fed. I mean, a lot of it, I mean, I'm interested in those things, but I feel like I'm always- wondering what yeah. what it is they're talking about. Yeah, so I got into real estate through real estate appraisal right out of high school. In fact, I started in it when I was in high school. And one thing I always say is appraisers are the policemen of the real estate industry or the uh, not the policemen, the hall monitors. Hall monitors. <laughs> the yeah. hall monitors yeah. of, yeah. of the marketplace. Um, and the joke is, like I rag on appraisers, I think the industry is not, it doesn't provide the value we expect it to provide. Mm -hmm. And realistically is we try and act as if real estate is scientific and it's not at all. It's very artistic. It's relational. It's artistic. Only in the most cookie cutter of cookie cutter scenarios, a subdivision where you have four floor plans and 50 sales of the same floor plans can real estate become scientific. Okay. So it's funny because like I understand the science behind it. I understand the theories. I understand the math. I understand how it's supposed to be this scientific process, but it's nothing like that. And so that's where I love investing is because now if you can understand the math, you can understand the fundamentals, you can understand supply and demand and number of housing units and number of households and all that data. And then you can be creative with it as an investor would be creative with it and relational and build relationships. And honestly, what I really like about economics is that's the easiest conversation to have when it comes to real estate. Everyone wants to talk about it. Very few people actually know what it means. So you can look really, really smart. Not know anything it's that you're show. talking. It's a show. <laughs> in honest, in and those presentations, I it's almost like putting on a costume and a character, and you go up front. And so the scientific portion of me, which you saw the other night, that's 
it's a nece- necessary component to make it fun, in my opinion, because so, you have to do that. Okay, so let, let's talk about you for a minute. So you clearly have a heart to give back and teach other people what you've learned. Investor Lab, this is something that you created, a meetup in Portland. You guys get together, share some industry knowledge. It's kind of a networking event. Is that something that you you did with partners or is that something you started? Um, so my business partner and I, and we had a third partner at the time. So in August, 2012 is when we first started hosting meetings like that. And so we did it for our local Mita or local RIA. Uh, the first meeting was literally in the basement of a pub. So we had like ski ball in the background making all this noise and it's dark and I'm trying to like, I got this PowerPoint presentation and it just grew organically from there. So I think we had two meetings in that basement then we went to a space that held like 60 people and we had one meeting there because it was standing room only and then we went to some other arenas and, and I've, education is just in my DNA. My dad was an educator. Um, it kind of just runs in the industry and, and I just love teaching. Um, and at that point in time, so 2012, I'd been in real estate appraisal for 15 years. So I understood market cycles. I had seen some market cycles. I'd been through some scenarios. So I had a lot more value to give the average. And at that time, I think 2012, all those networking groups for real estate investors, they got depleted. So they became full of sharks in 2006, seven, eight. And they, it was just those groups kind of fester, like the, the, the rookies getting picked on by yeah. the sharks, Looking right? for blood in the water. Exactly. And then the crash happens. And so all those groups clear out and then they start, you know, I was kind of on the front end of now these groups organizing again. And, um, but because you get a lot of the experience washed out, now you have not a lot of experience in the groups. And so even though I'd only bought a handful of houses and even though I never successfully actually sold one for profit, (laughs) I met these investor groups and I have a lot more experience than anyone else. And so immediately became able to share my experience and educate others. And that is the most amazing, how how do you want to explain it? way to live it's rich it's a rich way to live fulfilling it's it's a fulfilling way to Mm -hmm. live yeah and 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 so you get the ability to share and help them grow but then you get value out of it as well and then i then you create this environment of this just reciprocation environment i find that one of the best ways to learn is teaching Mm -hmm. you kind of you're kind of teaching yourself in those meetups you know sometimes we say well we're gonna i mean we do it because we want to learn mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we want to give something away but we also want to we all we want to learn so let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves i want to back up i want to i want to know what makes somebody decide they want to be a real estate appraiser what makes you decide yeah, for, i don't know about everyone <laughs> you, I didn't have mental health issues. I was just not a good enough athlete to go anywhere with it. And I had no clue where I wanted to go. So up in that point in life, the only way I got through school is because I was sports. Okay. That was the only thing that kept me interested. In what life. was your sport? Uh, baseball and football. Okay. All right. Um, I was probably better at football, but I enjoyed baseball, baseball more. more. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so... This must have been March 1997, right before spring break started hap- occurring, and we had some type of family function, and I was playing catch in the backyard with my uncle, who was an appraiser. And he had just started his appraisal firm two years prior. He had studied from my aunt's husband. Um, so there was a background of a real estate appraisal in, okay, the, in the family. In the family. Yeah. And in 1997, you know, the market was starting to boom from a refinance standpoint. And so he was joking. So why don't you come work for me? And I was like, great, I'll come work for you. <laughs> Um, and I grew up in Salem outside of Portland. And so that spring break, I job shadowed him and then loved it. And I think it was more Portland. I didn't, it wasn't real estate appraisal. It was the city of Portland, which I really loved growing up. And it was a good job opportunity. I didn't really care about what it was. Mm -hmm. It was in a cool place and I'd make more money than any of my friends right out of high school. So there's money in it. There's yeah. Well, if you work hard, you know, I mean, it was like 17 bucks an hour or something like that. Um, but immediately I'm a hustler and helped him double his his gross billings in a very very short period of time and so 
I started full time in June 97. I remember going in, um, my Jeep broke down in like January of 98. And I remember going in to get a, a new Wrangler. And just prior to that, we created a bonus program. It was like, well, hey, here's your best month. And I just convinced him into creating a bonus program. Here's your best month. We just, we've blown that out of the water, all these. You need to start bonusing me on this. So let's set an aggressive target. And then for every $1,000 above that target, I want 100 bucks. And he's smart. He goes to the bank and then has all these, comes back with all these $100 bills and starts taping up across the room. <laughs> Motivation. <laughs> Motivation, right? And so then I just started immediately. That's how I learned how to work 80, 90 hours a week. And we worked out of his house. So I would work all day. I'd leave for dinner. I'd come back. They're like, you know, putting Morgan down to sleep and doing the romantic stuff. And I'm in the back office just cranking out appraisal. How, how old are you at that time? 19, 18, 19. So you're 18, 19. What made you so money driven? at 18, 19 years old, like what, what was your, what was the fire? Why did you feel like you needed to do more, make more? That's a really good question. Cause money's never really been a driver for me, but it was a game. Yeah. It was reward is what it was. It was the pride thing. So being an athlete, mm -hmm. you like competition. You like, uh, you like the sport you like to play. Yeah. So, th so you move out of sports and it's like, well, the NFL's not calling. I need to go find something else I can be competitive. I got to compete. Got to compete. Yeah. yeah. Where you got to get that significance from, right? Because we need significance in our life. So I was lucky that that was quickly how I got significance. All my friends went to college and they were all broke and Mike's got all the money. Yeah. 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 So I guess that was, yeah. That's that fun. Was, that yeah. part's fun. It was fun. You say you don't do yeah. it for the money, but once you have the money, it's kind of like, yeah. I, I kind of want to have the I money like too. I like that part too. You don't want to not have it. You don't want to not have it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I get it. Okay, so how long were you an appraiser for? Um, I let my license expire in, t or in 2018. Oh, okay. The reality is, is 20, 2009 was the perfect time for me to shift. So Dodd-Frank happened. I'd bought a handful of properties prior to Dodd-Frank and, and I wasn't an investor at that point. I was an appraiser. I could value real estate. So I knew I was getting a good buy. I had good money, good income. So I bought some properties, not with a plan, but with basic level of knowledge, yeah. market crashes, Dodd-Frank happens. And so, and what I did was I realized I didn't know what I was doing. I had bought some real estate done well, had equity. I didn't know what I was doing. So I didn't want to go buy more real estate without understanding how to be an investor. So before all those crashes, I was the smart thing. I refinanced all my properties, pulled all the cash out, and then put it in the stock market. Um, so that way I would make a return while I got educated, and then the stock market crashed, and then the real estate market crashed. You got your education. I got my education. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what yeah. you were looking for. It's a, Yeah. You got yeah. it. So in 2009, um, I still had my 401k, and I had, I think, like 30 grand in my 401k. And rich dad, poor dad came to town. And so then I cashed that out to write a $26,000 check for some really bullshit uh, real estate education. <laughs> um, but that's what got me into the into the meetup. So mm -hmm. 2010, I went to my first meetup, um, was kind of wholesaling and flipping, made some partnerships, had some success. 2011 really started to grow, started, you know, started building a rental portfolio in 2012, started then started the education and the meetups after that. So you're an appraiser, you're out looking at homes and what, what led you to the point where you said, um, I know what a deal is. I better buy one. Did you feel like, were you, were you becoming a deal junkie at that point? Were you getting your first taste or was it just, Hey, I know some information other people don't have. I should yeah. take advantage of that. Really good question. Um, er, so there's pre-crash and post-crash, Mike. Two completely different human <laughs> beings. Okay. So pre-crash, I was an appraiser. And it was, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I got, I understood leverage. I understood math and the economics behind all that. So that's just a good, smart decision. My first purchase was really good, actually. It was an amazing, it was an off-market deal. It was word of mouth. It was a short sale. And this was 2003. No one knew what short sales well, were. Yeah. I didn't know what a short yeah. sale was. I mean, he was like, I owe 230. I'm like, I can only pay 200. And he's like, ah, let's do it. And he had been already working with his bank. So he had an idea they would short the note. And at that point, title escrow did the short short sale negotiation. The escrow agent did really. It. Yeah. Um, so short sale, then house hacked it, rented the basement out to a friend. So I did all these things and, and it just 
made sense and then bought some more real estate. But again, it wasn't a strategy behind that. I wasn't an investor. I didn't really actually know what I was doing. Um, so 2009, when I got educated, now I learned, well, this is what a short sale is. This is what Legion is. This is what off-market real estate is. This is what um, assignments, this is seller financing, flipping, all these things that I just had no clue on. All I knew at that point was you go get a mortgage, right? So I knew what 95% of people knew and I needed to become the five. And so then in 2010, that's when it really changed because now I've got the skills. Now I got some relationships. I didn't have any money, didn't have any credit, but now I knew what I was doing. I knew what to look for. And I could start moving forward. But 2010, 11, 12 really sucked because you could find deals every day, all day, but you, the raising the capital. Capital yeah, didn't want money. Yeah. yeah. Money was so tight back then. And and so like anyone who started post-COVID in the reality of money's been so loose. And, and, and this is beyond 2006, 7 loose. This has been so loose that now it starts to tighten that's for me, it's like going home, mm -hmm. right? Like when the market flipped in June, 2022, oh, I can do this. I know, not that I couldn't do anything else, but it's like, as everyone got afraid, this is what I grew up in. Yeah. yeah. So when the money is easy to find, the deals are hard to find. Mm -hmm. When the deals are, you know, it kind of goes in, it goes in reverse. reverse. Mm -hmm. So you go, oh, I'm going to wait till the market crashes. Well, you might, but then nobody's going to give you the money to do a deal. So yep. you better be stockpiling your, your chips and getting ready for those days. I have, I have some friends that do that. Um, okay. So they say that an appraiser and a broker ride the same horse, but the broker faces forward and the appraiser faces backward. And I don't necessarily, I have a lot of appraiser friends and, and they're great folks. I mean, we, um, we glean a lot of information from one another. They're much more detail oriented, studying data, but when it really comes down to brass tacks and they need to know what a property's worth, they call me or they call one of our brokers and they ask them, where are things going? Because we have a pipeline of deals that are getting ready to close that nobody knows about yet. So we know we know that the phone's ringing with a certain kind of buyer. We know kind of where cap rates are going. We know what's hot and what's not. And we can see which way the wind is blowing because of our pipeline, I think. And so brokers, our, our appraisers are calling brokers often and asking them, what's in your pipeline? What's going on? So for you, as an appraiser turned, let's buy a few houses turned. Tell us about the journey into switching which way you were facing on that horse and what made you decide to make that change. Yeah, so many, a lot of ways to answer that question. I've never heard that analogy, but it makes so much sense. And, and what I think, now let's go back to economics and data, right? A broker is you're immersed in leading indicating data that hasn't been published. You're having all the conversations that ultimately show up in the transaction report six, nine months down the road. And from an appraiser standpoint, you're never part of those leading indicating conversations. You're only reviewing stuff in the past. And if you're doing what you're supposed to do, which we know most appraisers don't, you're not actually calling everyone and you're not getting all the information. And if you are making those phone calls, the ability to extract the information to make that valuable, mm -hmm. right? So you were there, you had the conversation, you know exactly what was happening in, in the minds of all the players mm -hmm. in the transaction. The appraiser's job is to get into the minds of all those transactions, but appraisers are human. You don't want to work more than 40, 50, 60 hours a day. Like yeah. if you can, if you've left four voicemails and someone hasn't got back to you, do you not deliver the report when your client's sure. saying, I need this report? So the reality of just being in life, you know that they have so much less information than you do. And and I'd say commercial, it's even more so commercial than it is in mm -hmm. residential. Now you take the aspect of you're probably pretty focused in what you focus on. Well, appraisers are sent everywhere. Right. And so here's a really good example. As an appraiser, I've never sold a house in this market. I've never rented a house in this market. I've never put a house up for rent in this market. But yet yeah, I'm the perfect person to go to where my opinion matters just because I can look at some data and tell you a story based on that. Even though I, you know, so you can tell I don't have a big high opinion for the industry. I think the skill set is amazing. And if you can really understand the goal of the appraiser is to get into the minds of all the actors in a transaction or in the marketplace. That's super helpful for life. And so because I've been in both arenas, I can see about that. And so what I am as an investor now is I'm trying to be a really good appraiser. I want to know what all the tenants think, what all the landlords think, what all the sales agent, listing agents think, buyers think. So I want to be what I was supposed to be as an appraiser, which as an investor, 
it's rewarding enough to do that, that yeah. I can do that. Yeah. As an appraiser, you it, just can't. It's not a $100 bill taped to the wall. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, there's more at stake. It, We're playing a bigger game now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, ex- right. So when I have to raise the capital and I have to buy the property and, and I have to put 100 grand into it, yeah. you know, an appraiser tells me that's 700 I'm like, dude, it's 625 <laughs> Oh, no, do you want to write me a check based on the 700 or do you want to, you know, right? So it's a significantly le- different level of stakes and you learn so much more. And so that's why I say pre-crash Mike versus po- mm-hmm. post-crash Mike. Post-crash Mike has real life experience buying, selling, renting, rehabbing, all that stuff. Post-crash Mike was an uneducated investor that made some stupid decisions. Okay. So let's talk about that. Yeah. You, you buy five houses, don't know what you're doing. You're an appraiser. You decide- I'm going to refinance, pull some cash out of this portfolio. That was the stupid decision. And I'm going to learn I'm going to learn what to do with that money. Yeah. While I'm doing it, I'm going to park it over here in something I don't understand. Yeah. And then oops. Yeah. Stock market crashes. Mm-hmm. Did you lose that money? Oh yeah. All of it? <laughs> All of it. No, cuz I pulled some <laughs> Dane's puckering right now. Yeah. <laughs> Right. It's why I don't like okay, I don't. So you lost all your equity too, in yeah. your homes in the stock market, most of it. Yeah. So you're able to salvage some of that. And then what did you learn in that process? You went out, you went to learn how to be an investor. How how did you learn and what did you learn when you decided to become an investor? Um the further you are from the communication with the seller, the worse of a deal you're getting. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I learned to be an investor, you want to talk directly to the property sellers. That's the biggest, best tool ever because that opens everything. I often say the only thing getting in the way of this deal are the brokers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's (laughs) It's the only thing wrong with this deal is the brokers. You know what I I love? Like the broker that recognizes, uh, you know, I've got some brokers like this where I have really good relationships. One of them, we're going on like seven years now. They're really good retail brokers. They sell a lot of retail real estate, but they understand when it shouldn't come to the market and they understand when it should be an off-market sell. And what they do the best is just get out of the way. They make an introduction and they say, this is my history with Mike. This is why I trust him. That's why I'm making this introduction. You guys have a conversation. I'm going over here. Mm-hmm. Right? Because he's not in the way. Mm-hmm. He understands what he's getting in the yep. way. You're talking residential. I mean, single family residential. That's your primary focus. Yeah. Yeah. So I flip a lot of residential and then my portfolio is two to 10 unit apartment buildings. Okay. Yeah. And then a little bit of land land banking. From the portfolio standpoint, I love to land bank. If you can just make the income now pay for something where you're buying a worse than, less than what the land is and you see land values going to increase. Because that's the other thing. If real estate doesn't appreciate, real estate depreciates, land appreciates. Um, so there's so much component and value into land. I love to land bank. And then we do some new constructions. We're going to have to have a whole nother episode. Dive into this. This. <laughs> <laughs> that one always blows people's minds. I, I think I see that one from a different angle, like a covered land play, like a something where it generates income to cover your mortgage. You're going, hey, this thing's a house today. Yeah. But one day it'll be something else and we're going to own a multi-million dollar piece of land mm-hmm. yes. that we don't have to pay for because the tenant's making our mortgage payment. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Dane likes this too. Is this where you're getting it from? I love Dane it. keeps coming to me going, I- We've talked to Mike about it a lot. Yeah. I want these we, covered I've land places. picked his brain over yeah. coffee. Portland has different regulations on, um, I shouldn't say regulations, the the way that their tax lots and mm. versus legal lots are laid out are funky. And you you talked to us about like, historical well. lots. Yeah, historical lots of Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we haven't. I'd say this. The zoning code is kind of the next thing in becoming investors. Like mm-hmm. one of the best things about an appraiser is the highest and best use. So the highest and best use to test is is what's legally possible, uh, legally permissible, physically possible, financially feasible, and then high, uh, maximally. S- say that all one more time for yeah. us. Legally possible. Legally possible. No. Legally permissible. Permissible. Okay. Physically possible. Okay financially feasible and then maximally productive. And so that all starts with the zoning code, what's legally possible. Okay. Um, most people don't ever even know what a fucking zoning code is. Pardon my friend. <laughs> uh, That's the right word. That's the right descriptor word. For it really zoning is. Code, I think it yeah. is. Yeah. You got to drop an F-bomb. <laughs> it. So it's great reading material to fall asleep at night. 
but more importantly, it's great meat reading material to understand. Like, so you, you've you've heard every neighbor say this: that damn developer, they can do whatever they wanted. Mm. The city just bends over for them. No, <laughs> they just understand the city city code, yeah. right? They understand what you don't understand, right. and then they understand that all codes have the ability to appeal and adjust. Mm -hmm. So you can adjust the zoning code, you can appeal the building code, and they probably know the uh, you know in terms of the role of the dice and what are our, what are our odds in getting this zoning code uh, appealed you yep. know uh, approved the appeal approved here's a really good example so ADUs have a max square footage of 800 square feet so i bought a property at a 950 square 954 square foot garage I wanted it to be an ADU. I spent three grand to go through an adjustment process. So the application is three grand plus I have to hire professionals for drawings and all that. So it's a $3,000, $4,000 roll of the dice, whether or not they'd approve it or not. Um, well, I understand what the criteria, because I know the zoning code. I know what the application is. I need to write a, write a narrative of how I meet these criteria. And it's like, okay, there's nine criteria. I can meet six. So I can make a compelling argument for six. And the other three I just write don't apply not applicable so you and then you get an experience you know what can get approved and what can't and then you always have a backup plan is always smart so in that scenario i could have approved it as an 800 square foot unit one of the bedrooms just wall it off get it all final and then Knock open the wall that. Mm -hmm. yeah so but you didn't and you got it approved yeah and so now it's a more valuable unit because it's legally mm. this two bedroom two bath it's a, it's a and so that means now on your um on the tax statement mm -hmm. it'll show as 954 rather than 800 square feet mm -hmm. it's a, it's a legally permitted 954 yeah. square foot ADU okay and we're talking a location where you're 400 bucks a square foot so that 854 is what 60 mm -hmm. something grand so it's worth the it's worth the exercise. It's worth the $4,000 to have it be permitted mm -hmm. so that you're not doing unpermitted units or yeah. footage or whatever, because it'll show up. And then when you go to get an appraisal, do a refi or sell, yep. um, you get that, that value. You don't have to say, but I have an extra 154 feet you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And they go, well, Posted sure you do, comments. but mm -hmm. it's not, you know, mm -hmm. doesn't say it right here on the tax statement. Yep. Okay. Um, Okay, where should we go next? Dane, yeah. help me out. No, I mean, I've got a ton of questions. From, <laughs> He's already right. from the earlier side of it. Uh, so, so when you switched from appraiser to investor, what was the first like deal type that was immediately attractive to you? Were you already excited about covered land plays? No. Highest and best use? Or was it just, I just want to do houses because I understand flips? I didn't have any money or credit. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So it was wholesaling. That was really what it was. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that was my entry into like actual real stuff was wholesaling. So it was how do you lead gen? So it's drive for dollars. It's cold calling. Mm -hmm. um, letters worked pretty well at that point in time. Cold calling and door knocking actually worked really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was literally just, um, I'm sorry, what was the question again? Just that was the strategy. What, yeah. Gen. What strategy yep. was the yep. most exciting? So it was lead gen with the idea to now go try and wholesale something. And then you find the best deals. Yeah. So. Yeah. And in funny, the funny thing back then, like, you didn't need to do lead gen. You could write a hundred offers on REOs and short sales all day long. So the other component then is now you have to have a relationship with a broker and we would spend these shotgun hours. We just get together for two hours and literally just sign offers and offers them and just sign and sign and sign and sign. Mm -hmm. So you're just shotgunning off. Like you do that today, you look like an idiot. Mm -hmm. But back then you do that. And so you built this pipeline if you're hoping that you're going to get some sh like six, nine months down the road, short sales approved, REOs approved and all these scenarios. But mm -hmm. the, the reality is, is I found some really good deals and I understood the land play. I understand the legal lots of record. I understand because as an appraiser, I was appraising these things for other investors. And part of my appraisal world was I was appraising for flippers. And, and so that's why I wanted to do this, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I was preparing for all these things and then the crash just kind of pushed it back. And mm -hmm. so the difference for me now starting post-crash versus what I envisioned was now I didn't have the capital I thought I was going to have, but I still understood the strategy. I still understood what you wanted to do and I knew some of the people. And so mm -hmm. what was frustrating for me was getting investors to recognize mm -hmm. the value. Mm -hmm. And I remember this, this is a true story. This is so funny. And this is, this is a good mentorship story, but I remember um, one of the, so I'm going to this re, I'm going to these meetings and one of the speakers, two guys that were running the event, you know, like, oh my gosh, they're so amazing. And the guy comes up to me, he's like, you're really smart. We should go out to coffee. So I got to coffee. I'm working on these and I'm getting this deal under escrow and get this deal in escrow, a couple, meet him later, you know, a month later at their office. And they're, you know, 
And I come with my business partner at the time who's worked for me as an appraiser. And I come and I've got this file folder just full of comps and data and like all this stuff and come to their office and they're like, well, we found these two comps. We don't think it's a good deal. We, we found these two comps and we're starting a mentorship program. And here's here's the, the options we offer to coach you on how to be a mentor. And I love these two individuals, by the way. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of them now is it was a coaching student of mine for a long time. Yeah. Lends me money. I'm actually going to go play golf with them next week in Palm Desert. So it's, it's funny. Like, that's what I was banging my head up against the wall. Mm -hmm. So they had experience. They had flipped houses. They had capital. They knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But they had no idea how valuable I was. And so immediately got discounted from the get-go. Like, mm. I'm bringing you guys on a fucking platter, a detailed strategy that very few people know. There's, you know, it, I think the purchase was like 200 grand. There's 150 grand in profit. And it gets shoved in. And this, was, this wasn't just them. This was almost every door like that because no one wanted to release capital. Mm -hmm. Either the aggressive people already lost it all and they weren't around or the conservative people who made it weren't ready to release it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was going up against. And so what ultimately happened for me was I met some aggressive guys who were buying real estate. And that deal that got shoved back in front of me, I was able to wholesale to them. Mm -hmm. And then they recruit, oh, you know what you're doing. You need to be a part of this conglomeration and we're creating and everyone's part of the profit and we go into brokerage and contract this. And it was just spread all the profit out, get everyone attached to a deal and potential profit and then cook the books and steal it. So um, I made it through Dodd-Frank and all that. And then I filed bankruptcy after that partnership in 2011. So um, it was a that whole period of time, those two years, it was weird. It was a very, very weird scenario because I knew I had more knowledge than most people that I was coming across. I knew I had significantly less experience, but the experience didn't matter because everyone was in shell shock. And then the only people that would help me out were the crooks because they're the ones that didn't <laughs> care if they lost any money. And so when the market was revamping, it was... It was a really interesting time to see people come out of the shadows, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you've mentioned Dodd Frank. We have some young listeners, I yeah. think. Tell yeah. us a little bit about what Dodd Frank was and and how it affected you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, the real estate crash was a financial crash. It had nothing to do with real estate. The only thing it had to do with real estate was the finances were attached to real estate. And so it was just bad loans. It was just a conglomerate of really bad underwriting. It was really aggressive capital. It was, you had this bond market. You had so much money in the secondary market that, hey, we need a return anywhere. And so we just create these stupid vehicles of these loans. Like The Big Short's such a good movie. Anyone who I wants love to it. know it, yeah. Watched like, it like 10 times. I love oh, that movie. Times. And it's so accurate. It's so flipping accurate when... Oh. Like the dinner with the uh, the um, at the uh, Nobu in mm -hmm. Las Vegas, yeah. and, and he's like, "You're such a piece of shit." He <laughs> says it right to the guy, you know. He's like, "I know I'm a piece of shit. I'm worth so much more money, right?" Like that's how the industry was, and so Dodd Frank was the legislation that came after that. And that's the other thing is like people want to blame so much stuff on the Fed. The Fed's pretty freaking neutral. They don't create policies. They implement the banking mm -hmm. scenarios behind policies that Congress creates. And so the first big policy was Dodd-Frank, which is saying we are no longer allowing you to give loans to people that don't qualify. <laughs> qualify. For yeah. yeah. So qualified mortgage is like the stripper with five houses in Florida. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a great part of the movie as well. Um, so they create qualified mortgage came out of that. So what do you want a qualified mortgage? Well, you have to have this underwriting process. The other part is you want to have really good collateral. And so for me and the replications to the appraisers were now all the lenders wanted a higher level of licensing. Mm -hmm. And this is what's really actually good and bad for me. So I didn't have that higher level licensing. And in fact, before Dodd-Frank, Frank, completely aside from the real estate market, the state of Oregon changed their licensing requirements. So to get three levels levels of licensing, I had the first, the banks went to the second. In order to get the second, a couple of years prior, you got to have a college degree, which I didn't have because um, I went straight from high school to appraising. And so now Dodd-Frank passes and now you have appraisal management companies. So my clients were cut off overnight. I had a robust business. When I started my business, I literally um, got in a tiffy with my uncle and now 
one day I'm employed, one day I'm not. So I started a business and I had my business was bigger than his within three or four months. Appraisal business. Appraisal business. Okay. So I had all these clients. I had a really robust business. I had employees working for me. And then immediately overnight, those relationships are gone. And now you have to be approved with appraisal management companies to now get your business. But appraisal management companies wanted that higher level license, which I didn't have. And so my option at that point was I could do... Uh, education in lieu of college and I needed an economics class. So I go, here we go. Yeah. And this is where literally life changed for me. So I, and I hated economics. I almost flunked my high school economics class. The only reason I got a D is because it was my football coach. So I go to this community college economics class and the guy made it fun. Like we all understand supply and demand, demand drives price and yada, 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 but he made it fun and I got it. And, and, and so, okay, now I, I, I'm, I understand this a little bit more. And then my, I'm also an investor and I also want to be a developer. And I get invited to one of those breakfasts that you pay 500 bucks for. And then you have an economist speak at that breakfast. You're like, this is just a story. It's all it is, is this guy knows what he's doing and he tells a story and then uses statistics to support his story. And that inspired the shit out of me. And that was like 2011-ish. And then we started holding our meetings in 2012. And then being a teacher is the best way to learn, right? And so I started doing market updates. And then that just funnels into this whole economic <laughs> dis discussion. So Dodd-Frank was really impactful for me specifically because it killed my appraisal business. <laughs> And it really bloomed. If it, if I didn't take that economic class, I don't know that I'd be the person that I am today. So did you go straight from appraisal into investing when you start, like, or did you do a, you have a brokerage, a management company, all that, that come later or yeah. did that come right after? Yeah. So appraisals were pretty much done. It, so it was all into um, investing. And then I got into the bad partnership and in that, so as a partnership with them for like a year, year and a half, I think I personally negotiated like 26 purchases. So I got a lot of living room experience, negotiated a lot of deals. I, I came out of that a really good negotiator of real estate, but I was broke and filed bankruptcy at the end. But the, and this is how the world works. So I was in front of the bankruptcy judge Halloween 2011. Right before that, I met Candy and Jeff O'Brien, who the world's so small, but they had started an appraisal management company here locally in Portland. And I don't know, I, I went from being in front of the judge on Halloween to the next day overnight i met them and they had a client a credit union that allowed my level of licensing and they just started i had a twenty thousand dollar a month business like the next day and so i dove back into appraisals and so from that from bankruptcy until like 2013 i was working 40 50 hours a week as an appraiser at night and then i'd work as an investor during the day um i had the stupidest scenario i would sleep between like 8 p.m. and midnight, and that was my routine. Okay, tell us what you're doing during the day as an investor. What does that yeah. look like? So between midnight and like six, I'm writing appraisal reports, and then I'm getting my kids up and getting them to school, and then in I the have- Middle of the night. Yeah, in the middle of the night. So, because no one's bothering me, I can write, re write appraisal reports. So I can make my money in the middle of the night. Okay. Then I can get the kids to school, and then I have a business partner and a development company. We've got flips, like we're managing flips, and we've got some land development. And we so it's now you're doing this business, you're <laughs> project managing and trying to acquire more real estate. So meeting with sellers, but then I also have to do the inspections on the appraisals to write in the middle of the night. So now I'm just doing a appraisal appointments while trying to manage projects, while trying to meet seller meetings. And you're just juggling all these stupid balls, trying to get my bills paid, trying to get my mortgage paid while getting projects to create future revenue. And not sleeping. Yeah. The sleep was very minimal. <laughs> <laughs> how'd you, uh, how'd you get your time back? <laughs> uh, 2014 was like the end of it. Like, so this went to about 2014. I remember 2014, I made a decision. Do I pay my mortgage in December or do I buy Christmas presents? Um, bought some Christmas presents, didn't pay the mortgage. And I think like February or, or March got caught up, got out of kind of the gel. And at that point is just now projects started hitting. And the other thing was when that partnership failed, my current partner, who I'm just buying out now 12 years later. So in 2011, we formed a partnership. So he was also partnered and they were losing stuff and, and 
Tyler came to me like six months before all that happened. He was like, hey, this is what I'm doing to reorganize. You're never going to get paid. <laughs> I remember that. And I was like, oh, no, I got $100,000 coming. All these projects, they're almost done. All this profit coming. Um, and so when we came off, I filed bankruptcy. And then he had to go to some private investors and were like, hey, you lent me this money. I'm over leveraged. I can't sell this property. I need you to pull your lien off so I can sell the property and then we'll make you whole. So from August 11 to like 2014, it's paying off bad debt, creating income to pay yourself, running an appraisal business to pay off other things, and then trying to build a rental portfolio. So it's and, and I mentioned this when we were on stage and doing the interview the other night. When, when shit hits the fan, it's almost easier to move forward than it is to fix the bullshit. Mm -hmm. You can't not fix the bullshit. You still have to put attention into it and you still have to get it. But you can't let that derail you. <laughs> and, and so what's your option? If that's going to take your 30 or 40 hours, but you can't, you just got to work more like you because you can't get derailed. And that's where most people mess up mm -hmm. is they get derailed and even like a new new investor they do some marketing they find a good deal they they buy it and now they renovate it they stop their marketing and then six months later the project's done they have no deals right because they just mm -hmm. stop moving so you always have to be pushing forward as you're Cleaning dealing in the, the present yeah, yeah. That, that's a paul curly uh spiritual principle of real estate is you have to grow out of your problems yes. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot shrink down in a hole and hide and mm -hmm. try to put the fires out because once the fire is out you got nothing you gotta mm -hmm. you gotta mm -hmm. keep going keep pressing forward and negotiating a lot of short sales meeting with a lot of sellers in that period of time 95 percent of people become ostriches they just put their head in the yep. sand. Mm -hmm. Give up. Yeah, mm -hmm. They just give up. Yep. And it's so easy to just not open the mail. <laughs> yeah. And hang up on the credit yeah. callers. Mm -hmm. Well, and 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 for those that are young, too young to remember vividly those days, um, you know, it, it was an interesting time in the world. I mean, we, I think most Americans had sort of just given up financially. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's like. You know who cares? Like mm -hmm. you know, you pride yourself one day on being an eight hundred beacon, and the next day you're like, so like, <laughs> I I just can't pay that bill, so I'm not going to. You know, like what do you what are you gonna do? Everybody's not paying their bills. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of thoughts on that. One sentiment, like this is how economics and cycles are created, right? So the sentiment of the people that had something were to not let go of it because I'm afraid, and then the sentiment of the people that already lost anything is I don't give a care. Who cares? Yes, it. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, you said something, and I was going to play off that as well. <laughs> what was the last thing you said? Not paying bills. Eight hundred beacon. This will show you our age. Mike and I are a little bit older than Dane. We're in our. We're not I, mid. Hey, I, I remember two thousand eight. That's the only reason I live in Oregon. How, how old were you in two thousand eight? I was nine years old. You yeah. remember that? Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, you're watching I, the news. Well, I because my dad had a conversation with us. We moved to this. I mean, this will come up when we talk about me. But uh, we moved to Oregon when I was seven, and then we he he was supposed to have like a three year stint in Oregon to kind of get the office that for the company that he was working for is still working for um kind of back in line and uh in 2008 he had to kind of sit us down <laughs> and, and be, change the plan so kids. here's the thing um, <laughs> the, i know we're moving next year but the house that we bought a couple years ago um it's worth about half of what it was <laughs> when we bought it. And so we can't sell it. And I was like, I didn't even know what it would be, but like he just was trying to be real basic. And I was like, okay, so, and he was like, so we have to keep living in it. And I was <laughs> like, all right. And he was like, so it'll just be like probably five years. And then um, we lived in, well, they lived in Oregon for 12. Yeah, they sold that house and they sold it for, I mean, like 20000 less than they bought it for in 07. 12, 12 years 12 later. Years later. Wow. So they sold it in 20. Wow. Yeah, I, I remember those days. I uh, I can remember thinking, like, I, I did a short sell on a house and went through a divorce during the, those times. And I remember thinking, like, I don't ever want to own another house. Like, <laughs> I don't ever want another mortgage. Uh, and, then, and then I kind of came around, well, I would probably have a mortgage, but not if it ever exceeded $1,500 a month. Or mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like, I mean, just the, 
just the pain of it all, you know, just kind of like put this dark cloud over real estate for me. I'm curious how long that lasted because my impression of you is a guy who has no limits in his belief <laughs> in the way you live. That'll, whoa, whoa, that's for a little that's, that's the next episode. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. this off. Okay, well, let's get back no, into no, no. it. Let's talk so, about not Mike. paying your bills. One thing I, and this is a talking point I give in a lot of my presentations. Um, we have no political will left in this country. And two points I'm going to go to specifically. If you weren't paying your mortgage in 2003 and you told your neighbor you're not paying your mortgage. <laughs> what are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then they're like, you're not, you know, you're the stigma. Just, you're that You're asshole. a bad person. You're not paying mm-hmm. your mortgage. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Everybody has so much money. Yeah. And then in 2009 or 10 and you go to your neighbor and you're like, I'm not paying my mortgage. High five. Right. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. No. No, this is the running joke. Bob and Sue down the road, they're the only person paying <laughs> their mortgage. mortgage. Yeah, yeah. So we politicized. We made it socially acceptable to not pay your mortgage. Mm-hmm. Then what did we do when COVID first dropped? Don't we government it. sponsored not paying your rent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or your yeah. Or your rent. Yeah. yeah. And so like when you think of when you look at economic monetary policy over decades of periods of times and you add context to those periods of times, politically, economically, production wise of where you're at and whatever cycle you're in. There's never been anything that lines up now where money is as loose as it is. Political Mm. willpower is as weak as it ever has been. The average citizen's willpower to maintain anything is less than it ever Mm. has been. So for me, of a real estate standpoint, is the only way forward is something really has to blow up. We're talking civil war. And at that point, I really don't care what's happening. Or money has to be loose loose going forward like we can adjust the cost of it but pulling it out of the economy is almost impossible at this period of time and so from an investor in an asset collection standpoint like the other night you said own all the real estate i was going to ask what's your investment philosophy and you beat me to it You're like just own all the real estate mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that philosophy in my mind and even going back to the dumb decisions i made the acquisitions were not dumb. Those were great. Looking back, those would have been really good acquisitions. What was dumb? Not having a plan, refinancing it, and not having a plan. So the the decisions were post-acquisition. Mm-hmm. So I don't see any downside in owning real estate as long as you have the finance mechanism that allows you to hold on for a period. Got to hang on yeah, through the tough times. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there will be tough times. There will be tough times. Yeah. Yeah. The beauty for us is I think the pain of those tough times will be limited by our lack of willpower going forward. So when you say lack of willpower as um, just the consumer or politically, politically. you think politically. So yeah. go. let's not go down a rabbit hole, but just tell us briefly to. what you mean by that political willpower. Like they just don't have the backbone to make a hard decision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the only way to get out of our debt. So we talk about our debt is mm-hmm. problematic now as a percentage of GDP. It's like 130 um, percent. The only way to cure that debt is austerity, which takes significant. So there's four ways to cure it. One, you austerity, you just be financially sound. No nope. principles. We're not going to have that. Um <laughs> I'm going to brain fart through it. The The ultimate way to pay it off is through financial repression, which essentially means having inflation slightly higher than your borrowing costs. The other portion of that is, well, your borrowing costs, the cost of your debt is a big component of your budget. So you have to have low interest rates to keep your your personal finance. So you have your balance statement and then you have your monthly, your, your P&L, right? So you have your balance statement and your P&L. So debt doesn't matter on a balance statement mm-hmm. standpoint at all. Debt matters on a P&L while you're paying That's right. it, right? So to make your P&L healthy, you need to have low interest rates. So that way the cost of your debt isn't so much of your income. Okay. So let's, let's just dive on that just for a yeah. second. So your balance sheet is assets and liabilities. It's going to show you your net worth. Cost of debt goes up or down until it starts to hit your asset values. It doesn't really change that balance sheet. Correct. You go over to your P&L and now this is like cash in, cash out. What is my net 
cash flow yes. and the cost of that debt goes up. So your expenses go up and you're making less money. Correct. So on one hand, you can be going broke. And on the other hand, you can be getting rich yes. and you're the same person <laughs> yes. with the same numbers. Yes. Just one looks bad and one looks great. Exactly. Yeah. I think I'm that person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're, I refer to you as a balance sheet investor, AKA a bank. <laughs> so it's smoke and mirrors, right? And, and literally that discussion is quickly the banking crisis. We won't dig into it, but that's what it is. Their balance sheet looked really, really good. Mm-hmm. And they realized their financial statement wasn't. This is kind of the stock market too, though, yeah. right? I mean, like all these multi-billion dollar companies that have met, never turned a single penny of profit. Mm-hmm. Like it's- it's, I don't know, it feels like a house of cards to me. Yeah, venture capital has forever changed because of the tightening cycle we just went through. And one of my favorite podcasts is the All In Podcast, which is like the guys that invest in PayPal. Um, the way they talk about VC capital now is really amazing. Like mm. it, it went, you know, it de-10x'd. So they're like, you know, this would have been a $5 million raise. Now it's a $300,000 raise. This would have been a $100 million raise. Now it's a $20 million raise. So the way that they structure capital now because of AI, because of technology, they don't need it. And because they've shown that this is how the business model is reacted in the past well we don't have those economic conditions so it's really interesting to see how capital has changed but kind of going back to the discussion the balance sheet is very manipulatable it's very easy to make it look good Mm -hmm. it's long-term scenario it's wealth that matters significantly less than your person your your pnl which happens on a month-to-month day-to-day year-to-year basis so in order for the government's pnl to be good they have to have the cost of interest down so that way their cost of debt is low from a percentage of income standpoint because they're playing the same game we are. I mean, or we're playing that we're playing the same game they are. Yeah, I guess in a way. Yeah. So, I mean, and you, when you look, I read an article yesterday that said that uh, for the first time in forever, um, you know, the Fed lost a bunch of money. They, you know, I can't remember they were in the, they had a deficit of several hundred billion or something like that. And then the at the end of the article, it says something like, "But does that?" even matter <laughs> like it yeah. does it mean anything like i i guess not i mean but but to your point like our government our, our money is debt we'll get into that in a in another podcast but when your money is debt and you have uncontrollable spending and you don't have uh what was the word you used austerity mm-hmm. when you don't have austerity you don't have discipline and you're not willing to rip a band-aid off and make it painful for a short period of time to get things back in order mm-hmm. Um, where, where does this all play out? Yeah. So this goes into the financial repression. So you can, austerity comes down through spending less. Mm-hmm. It's one, one component, spending less. The other component is tax more. Mm. How do you get elected based mm-hmm. on taxing more, spending less? You don't. So politicians aren't going to go for one or two. So now you come down to financial repression. And so now you inflate it away. By printing money. By printing money. And so the deal there is you want, inflation to be greater than your cost of capital. And that's how you deflate debt away. It's how we did it from the 40s mm-hmm. to the 70s. So if you look at the 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 government's debt from the 40s to the 70s, we were able to pay it down almost. So the, the 40s, we were pretty close to where we are today. And then they were able to pay it down in the 70s. And the reason being, inflation was higher than the cost of debt. And so what happens is savers lose money. And we understand this. You put your dollar in the bank and you hold it there for 10 years and inflation inflates it away but where does that money go to mm. right there is a math a balance sheet equation for where that deflation goes to and it goes to the person who borrowed it from you and so as the government what do we do is we just borrow money and so if we can borrow it at a rate that's less than inflation mm-hmm. that money that the savers are losing inflation pays our debt down because we're the borrower side of it and so you need to keep the cost down for your PL to work, but you also need to have inflation greater mm-hmm. than it to make you inflate it down. And then when we're paying our loans back years from now, we'll be paying it. We'll be, we said we locked in our, our amount we borrowed today, and several years from now, you pay it with a dollar. Yeah. That's not worth as much, yeah. giving you a huge discount on your loan, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And then the, <clears throat> and I don't want to get into conspiracy theory, but I think there's value here. So now you look at the government. But I do. <laughs> now, now we're getting the deep dive into yeah, into Mike Nuss's brain. Say. So you look into the government and they they have different timelines on all their debt hmm. because of different 
cycles, different risk scenarios, right? And so go back to the word transitory. Oh, God. Do you know what the definition of transitory is by the Fed? Hmm. So what do you think transitory is? Mm, it's artificially inflated for a short period of time and will soon be sorted out after these temporary events come to an end. You're, you're, you're more that. educated than the average person, but the average person, they take that and like it comes and goes. Yeah. So inflation's here and it's going to go away. No, the Fed never said it's hearing not going to go away. They said it's transitory. It doesn't have long-term significant impacts. They recognized the entire time that inflation was here. They just used a word that deflected what, right? We're at a point in time where we had really low interest rates and we had no inflation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for the government mm -hmm. at all. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but you have to have inflation greater than your cost of borrowing. And if both are at zero, you're paying dollar for dollar your debt down. And when you own, when you have $30 trillion in debt and it's 130% of your GDP, you need someone to pay it off for you because you don't have the political will to pay it off yourself. So you need to have inflation created. So we just need a really good excuse to print $6 trillion. To deflate the value of money. So that way, when like you a do pay up all this debt, it's worth less. And, Come on, and, now. And, and Come on, now. I'm not they didn't make this in a lab and move I'm on. not going to say like, <laughs> this was created for this scenario, but, but when you look at, you you never let a good tragedy go right to, yeah. It, yeah. to waste. In but if you look at all the stuff that happens, what ultimately do we do? We create a spread. Mm. And if you look at the Fed's actions, you can see them ratchet down. You can see a ratchet up. But when you factor in where our government is today versus where our government was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's so different that there has to be a ceiling to it. Like the, I'd say this, the one slide higher for longer, the one slide I went through last week, if you go to the eighties, the feds all over the map, like yeah. they'll raise it 2%, drop it 4%. You know, mm -hmm. we went, the fed went 0. 0.75, 0. 0.75, 0. 0.75, 0. 0.75. And people were like, what the heck? Dude, that was nothing in the 80s. That was every yeah. meeting and it was back and forth. And, and so now the Fed's different. They don't want to have as much control. They don't want to be involved in it. But the 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 gravity of the tools they're using are significantly higher than they were back then because rates are so low. So the percentage yeah. of change is significantly higher. And they didn't print the money that they did. Right. Like our balance sheet was less than a trillion dollars in 2008. Now it's nine trillion. Mm -hmm. They're going to tell you. The other thing is you look at all the central banks and their balance sheets. That's that's not. They're not pulling money out of. They're tightening. Their balance sheets are declining. But the way the credits work, they're not actually pulling money out of the economy because they already injected it into the economy and they can't pull it back out in that period of time, because the person paying off their balance, their debt, is the government, right? So that money, the balloon payment, comes in. That balloon payment was supposed to go to an investor years prior. Mm -hmm. The Fed got in the middle, already gave the money to the investor. Right. So it's already in the economy. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> if that investor who holds the debt that the, that the Fed didn't buy it from, um, if that's paid off by an investor and not the government, now that money's pulled out of the, the economy. But as the Fed gets... So the way I understand it is... The Fed stepped in and started buying things investors were buying, right? Like this mm -hmm. is this is the mortgage-backed security, whatever. And so then when they decide they're not going to buy them as those mature, now they're not artificially coming in and stepping in and sort of changing the dynamic of how that market works. And so rather than pulling the money out, they're just not redeploying Correct. it the same way they were before. Correct. And yeah. that's where the that's where technically it's reducing your balance sheet because the other investor would redeploy it. And my argument, and I'll argue with Chat GDP GPT and we kind of <laughs> argue over <laughs> when Trevor gets it. back. Yeah. We'll let Trevor win. <laughs> so my argument is they already did that event previously and that money's already been deployed into the mm -hmm. economy so we can say it's being pulled out the reality is it's just it was already deployed and the other thing is well that's based off the assumption that the fed's just not going to re-inject it in the future sure. mm -hmm. which is something that they can easily do now which makes this so much different than 08 yes. i mean in many ways this this 2023 for me uh felt painful like an 08 but it's much different because Rather than, uh, I heard Logan DeVos, who we'll have on the show, mm -hmm. uh, he explained it as rather than trying to get traction going uphill and no matter what you could do in 08, you couldn't get the traction. Mm -hmm. Now we're speeding <laughs> down the hill mm -hmm. 
and they're, they got the brakes locked and all they have to do is if they go too far, they just let off the yes. brakes a little bit yes. and they can, like you said in your, your um, presentation the other night is they're not worried because they know now at this point, at least they've got gunpowder. Yeah. They've got, they have the tools to now manipulate it the way they want to. Whereas before when you're running at zero for a prolonged period of time, you don't have much wiggle room to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. The Fed's risk isn't a crash landing. A Fed's risk is not landing. Not landing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they can soft land and they can crash land and everything's great. If they don't land, that's problematic. And to your point the other night, like a soft landing is a very long landing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're not a plane. The economy is not a, a plane. Bit. Like we're not yeah. falling out of the sky. But mm -hmm. if we're going to have this soft landing, it may, it may, It'd be hard to tell if we ever landed to yeah. your point. So it, you're saying maybe they won't land. Yeah. Yeah. So like And it'll the, take back off again. The the phrase I came up with when I was doing my forecast was prolonged soft landing. And and that came out of the th I never thought it would be this long of a process. Looking back, it makes sense that it was this long of a process. And I think that's and that's another thing when I said it, I've never missed the trend. I've always missed how far along that trend will go. Like if I try and say interest rates will be X, I will be wrong. If I say interest rates are trending this direction for this period of time, I'm usually right. Um, and so that's kind of speaking under that scenario. But yeah, it's a really, really long process. And if you think about it, it needs to prolong because the closer you get to that landing, mm -hmm. the better the economy is. Mm -hmm. And if you're the Fed and you have good reports, mm -hmm. why? Why land it? There's no real reason to land it. Gotcha. Okay. So before we wrap, I just, I want to make sure that we touch on this. So your favorite asset type is one to 10 unit residential. You own a brokerage, you own a property management company. What takes up the most of your day? What, what do you do? What are you, are you looking for deals? Are you talking to brokers? Are you out, you know, telling a contractor what to do at a property? Like give us some idea of what the, a day in the life of Mike Ness looks like. Yeah, I'm really excited because I'm uh, I'm in the, almost done buying my business partner out, so I get full autonomy, full control of my business. And so, 2024 for me, I'm an acquisitions guy. I don't really don't care about all that other stuff. So brokerage, all I, my only level involvement is I coach. What we do, I I run our group coaching sessions once a week. So not a lot of involvement. Um, acquisitions, a heavy involvement. So I'm always in tune with what's going on from a project management standpoint. I'm always in tune with these offers are out there. And I'm the one that ultimately is kind of raising capital and managing cash flow. And so I'm, I have to be very involved in the acquisition side, but it's also from a people management standpoint. So what I'm really excited about for 2024 is like a dream manager role. So for me, it's what are, what are my staff doing? Not only from a day-to-day -day standpoint from building my business and running my business, but where are they going and what are their dreams in life? Mm -hmm. And so how do I now use the vehicle that we're all running together and pushing forward? So in order for acquisitions to be successful, property management has to be successful in order for brokerage to be right. So there's this. Mm -hmm. And while Sarah, who's running property management, may not be involved in acquisitions, there's this... It, Synergy. Synergy there. Mm -hmm. And so now how do I take the value of all those companies and that synergy, mm -hmm. synergy to ensure our employees are buying the real estate they want or going on the vacations sure. that they want? And so um, there's a really good book out there, Dream Manager. I read it in like 2019, 2020, never implemented in our business. But at the point now where we've got a management team in all of our divisions now, that now I just really get a really dig into the management side of it. I love that. So you really promote with your team that they need to own buildings. Yeah. Oh, and all of our, like, that's the, like the number one goal for all of our employees is the amount of real estate they, they buy. So, um, you know, I got a good text from one of our employees. He's like, Hey, I'm a double millionaire now. I was like, <laughs> like in debt <laughs> got two million in debt you know like, okay great and then daniel my acquisitions manager you know when i met him he had no rental real estate and now he's got like 12 units and um he's actually partnering so he lent me money to our company to partner with us on a flip I so um and then sarah's got her house in a rental unit and i know she wants to get another one and then andrew's got a couple houses as well so oh owning real estate if i'm not promoting it with our company i think would just 
Who exactly. am I as a human being? You live, you live what you preach. Yeah. Exactly. So you're uh, when you're out looking for an acquisition, are you looking primarily today for flips, or are you buying and holding? Something? That's the beauty of real estate starts at lead gen, and so you just do lead gen really, really well, and you choose what bucket it goes into. Okay. So some goes here, some goes there. Exactly, and you know some that may be someone else's bucket, you know, like because it's all relational based, and so you know is is the as a developer having a lot of product that I need to sell and stuff not selling, well, that's going to limit how much you're buying. And so in 2022 and 2023, we passed on way more deals than we ever have. Um, so Daniel bought a couple from us, Eric bought one from us, um, some other investor friends. So, you know, whether that's an assignment or a broker referral. So that's the beauty of having all those companies. You can yeah. structure things in some so many different ways. I love it. Yeah. So more rentals would be the biggest goal, I think. All right. Yeah. 2024. So we've got to get back to it. You just talked to econ, talked to us about econ for yeah, no thirty minutes, but <laughs> well, the conspiracy. I think your point with that was that it was inevitable. Yes. If it wasn't that, yes. it would. It wasn't been a something conspiracy. Else. It wasn't. Yes, it, I mean, so it appears to yep. be that, and you can pin it to yeah. Wuhan. It, it was a but, convenient <laughs> coincidence. It was a convenient coincidence. <laughs> it that was. They took it, a really it was gonna good job taking advantage. Um, so you're an artistic investor, yeah, not a scientific investor. <laughs> I love it. I think he's pretty scientific. I am too. He said he said <laughs> austerity. Did you hear that? Yeah, why are you making up words? <laughs> you, you should have your laptop here to Google it so you can tell me next time what that means. Yeah, I couldn't tell you what it means. <laughs> <laughs> I just heard somebody else say it. Uh, all right. Well, next we'll talk about a deal from Mike, but let's Yeah, so let's uh let's wrap this up. We're uh we're the deal junkies. Um interviewing today Mike Nuss. Very excited to have him as a co-host on this show and uh, can't wait for all the things that I'm going to learn and everybody else we're going to share that with. Dane brought up, it's funny, before we started recording today, Dane said, you know, we've already been doing this podcast. We just weren't recording it. So just so you all know, um, we sit around and talk about this sort of stuff all the time. We we geek out on it. We love it. It's a lot of fun. And so we're uh, we're excited to be able to share it with everyone. And we hope that you get something out of uh, out of this episode. And we really appreciate Mike and look forward to many future episodes. We're going to follow up with a favorite deal from Mike in a, another sub episode. I don't know what mm -hmm. Dane's going to call that, but we will uh, we'll be back after this. Thank you.